Amen. Thanks, Dave. Just bear me while I set up here. Any Man City supporters in the room? <laughs> no? Apart from Dave? Not going to confess that, are we? I'm a Spurs supporter, so we won yesterday unexpectedly. So I'm quite happy about that. Um, after, after life, my son Henry, he's four, and um, he was watching me watch the game. And he said to me, he says, Dad, very innocently, Dad, which team do you play for? <laughs> I was like, well, son, in my dreams, I play for Tottenham. <laughs> it's amazing what comes out of their mouths, isn't it? Um, yeah, so we're, we're in a series. For those of you that are new, um, my name's Dan Saunders. I'm part of the leadership team here. And we've commenced a series uh, looking at the parables of Jesus in the run-up to Easter. And as we're thinking about, as I shared a story there about my child, my son Henry, I was thinking this week, um, if you want to explain something important to a child or convey a new idea, what is the best way to do this? What is the best way to do this? One method might be just to recount all the necessary information and facts, yeah? Yet, and as you'll get a sense here, as you begin to impart knowledge, a glazed look of bewilderment begins to form across their eyes, or their attention is drawn towards the kitchen window as they watch the birds chasing each other in the garden. Or, halfway through your thesis, they interrupt with an unrelated question, Dad, where do crocodiles come from? Trying very hard to contain my frustration, I respond. And before you know it, your topic of conversation has been hijacked. And now you're talking about animals that live in Africa. What just happened? The funny thing is, adults are no different. Well-practiced defense mechanisms protect us from taking in what we consider is irrelevant information or perhaps really considering a new idea that makes us uncomfortable, or perhaps begins to rock our worldview, we glaze over. We distract ourselves, we numb our senses, or we carefully change the subject. Sound familiar? So the question remains, if you want to tell a child, or an adult for that matter, something important, or convey a new idea that will arrest their attention, what do you do? What do you do? You begin with this. Once upon a time. Or if you're like me, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. Cue the music, you know it. Story, yeah? Story has a way of drawing us in like nothing else. It enables us to step into the shoes of the characters and consider their world, their emotions, their hopes, their fears, their dilemmas, and it does it in a very disarming way, doesn't it? Stories fire our imagination to go beyond the walls of our present reality, to consider something different, to consider something new or unfamiliar. C.S. Lewis knew the art of storytelling and its potential to bypass our defenses. As he put it, stories have a way of stealing past those watchful dragons. 
And it's so true. When we think about the Old Testament, when we think about Nathan when he visited King David, he didn't directly tell him he'd committed adultery or that he'd murdered someone. What did he do? He told him a story instead. He snuck past those watchful dragons so that King David could truly perceive what he had done. Jesus was, un- was unconventional, wasn't he? You know, he never trod the expected path. I said a few weeks ago, when Jesus wanted to explain, to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. And likewise, when Jesus wanted to explain the kingdom of God, he didn't release a hardback 10-volume anthology, <laughs> as many theologians do. Instead, he told them a story. People are drawn to stories. People remember stories. More importantly, people retell stories, don't they? So I have a few questions here just to hold on to as we go through our parable and then make some reflections. What is the story of Redeemer that people are drawn to, this community? What story will people remember when they encounter us and when they walk into this building? And what is the story that will be retold in years to come? If you've got your Bibles on your tables or on your phones, uh, you can turn to Luke 13, verses 18 to 21. And it's a very short parable. Give you a couple of seconds to get to it. I'll read it together. Jesus begins by saying, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Done. As I was reading this and reflecting on this passage, I've been watching Green Planet. Have you been watching that? David Attenborough, classic. David Attenborough, great guy. If you don't like him, what kind of person are you? Um, I'm sure there's are, there are a few out there. But episode two, um, there was a very short section that really struck me, and it was almost like a modern take on this parable. And I thought, why not? Let's, let's watch this together this morning just to give us another sense of maybe what Jesus is saying here in these parables. So let's, let's watch this together. This is a fruit from one of the most important plants on the earth today, seagrass. This particular one is floating off the coast of Formentera in the Mediterranean. A hundred thousand years ago, a seagrass seed like this sank to the sea floor just here. Eventually, it produced 
a great meadow. A meadow that is still flourishing today. It did so by cloning itself. Now over 10 miles across, it's not only one of the largest living organisms on Earth, it's also one of the oldest. And it supports a rich community of many kinds of animals. It's become a kind of marine savanna. Over a thousand species now live here. Some, like these elegantly camouflaged pipefish, live nowhere else but amongst the sea grass. fringes many of the world's coasts. Turtles depend upon it too. And so do dugong, animals that are sometimes called, very appropriately, sea cows. This is a fruit from one of the most important plants. Here we go. If you've not caught the series, it's worth watching. It's funny, um, when I was reading around this particular parable, some theologians and people get very caught up about the detail of what kind of mustard seed was this, you know? What did it actually look like? What did it turn into? And I think we can get very caught up in that. And I think what Jesus is doing is, is, is far simpler. He's talking about the difference between something that is small and what it turns into. Jesus is well known for his miracles. At this point of his ministry, it's a testament to the authority he's been given by his Father in heaven. Jesus is also well known for his stories, his parables, and he begins this one by posing a question for his hearers. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, you're starting to recognize that I have some kind of authority. But what exactly does my role and my kingdom look like? And his remarks are important in light of Jewish expectation that the kingdom would come all at once and with great power. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast make fundamentally the same point that the kingdom starts out small, but often God's speed and God's ways are slow moving, but eventually it will cover the whole earth. Jesus compares the kingdom of a mustard seed that is sown in a garden and becomes a tree where birds can reside in its branches. The image of a tree that shades the birds comes from a very well-known part of the Jewish scriptures, something the hearers would have been familiar with and Jesus' initial question would immediately draw their attention to Isaiah 40, verse 18. And then the picture of the birds nesting in a tree would draw them to Ezekiel, which says this, On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, 
that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. (laughs) Even back then, the kind of unexpected rhythm of God and his kingdom and what it will look like. The expectation for those Jewish readers and even for us today is often not in line with what God is doing. But both parts of these scriptures are talking about God setting up a new kingdom, a promise of deliverance to his people, but it would come in an unexpected way. As N.T. Wright puts it, Jesus' words are not just an accidental echo. The passage is all about a fresh vision of God, the creator coming to rescue his people, coming to restore Israel. Israel mustn't think her God is incapable, powerless, on a level with pagan idols that promise much and do nothing. Don't worry, Jesus is saying, don't worry. Remember who your God is and what he has promised. Realize that this small beginning is the start of God's intended kingdom, the kingdom that will eventually offer shade to the whole world. I just have two short reflections, and then I want to land by telling a story. First reflection is this. The thing about a tree is that it's planted in the ground in the open, yeah? It's not in a house or a building. It's in the open. And it has no say as to what birds will come and nest in its branches. The fact that all kinds of birds make their nest points to the kind of posture the tree is presenting. It's one of welcome. It's one of invitation, of hospitality, of radical inclusion. It's a true picture of the church and God's kingdom. Second thing. Here is the thing about all types of birds taking up residence. I want you to kind of picture this in your mind's eye of these birds all nesting together in close quarters. Can you imagine the noise, the mess, the busyness of the to and fro of being in close quarters? It's going to cause some friction. Sounds a bit like a family, right? And what do families do well? They fight. <laughs> conflict is part of family life. I'm not talking about conflict in terms of war and fighting. I'm talking about, as Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, as one person sharpens another. Difference can often be met with suspicion and fear but I contend it is not necessarily the downfall we often fear, but perhaps it is the very place where life can spring. Unity in the face of difference is far more beautiful, far more worthy than unity in an echo chamber. I wonder how you cope being in those spaces and places of conflict, having your views challenged perhaps, I want to share a story from history. Earlier I asked the question, what is the story that will be told in years to come? We're all familiar with historical stories, both fiction and non-fiction, that have been retold, are familiar to us, and to one degree or another have bearing. One of my favorite stories from history centers around a man called John Wesley. 
For those of you that grew up in a more traditional church, you may be very familiar with his brother Charles Wesley. Let's do a bit of a, uh, what's a hit list of his songs or hymns. And can it be? Yeah? Love divine or love's excelling, and I think most of us would have heard of Hark the Herald Angels Sing at Christmas time. If Charles Wesley was born in our period of history, he would have been a skinny jean-wearing, coffee-drinking worship leader, all right? So I knew all about Charles growing up, but I knew nothing about his brother John until my late 20s. But his story immediately grabbed me and has stayed with me ever since. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement within the Church of England, which subsequently gave birth to Methodism as a domination in its own right. I'm sure we've all heard of the Methodists. But before all of that, John was a very different man, a man often plagued with doubt. In late 1735, a ship made its way to the New World from England, and on board was a young Anglican minister, John Wesley, who had been invited to serve as a pastor to British colonists in Savannah, Georgia. When the weather went sour, the ship found itself in serious trouble. Wesley, also chaplain of the vessel, feared for his life. But he noticed that a group of German Moravians who were on their way to preach to the indigenous people of America were not afraid at all. In fact, throughout the storm, they sang calmly. When the trip ended, he asked the Moravian leader about his serenity, and the Moravian responded with a question. Did he, Wesley, have faith in Christ? Wesley said he did, but later reflected, I fear they were vain words. It was later on in life that John Wesley discovered the need for what he called a living faith and the important role of experience in the Christian life. He encountered God, a transformational experience that changed the trajectory of his life forever. At a meeting in Aldersgate Street in London in May 1738, Wesley wrote, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my own heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He felt his heart to be strangely warmed. Wesley's emphasis upon the experiential side of Christian faith, which contrasted so sharply to the dullness of much of contemporary English religion, led to a major revival in England. But this is what I love about Wesley. He did not intend to found a new denomination. Historical circumstances, his organizational genius conspired against him to remain in the Church of England. Methodism gradually moved out of the Church of England, though Wesley himself remained an Anglican until his death. He wrote this in his journal towards the end of his life. I was now considering how strangely the grain of mustard seed planted about 50 years ago has grown up. It has spread through all Great Britain and Ireland, the Isle of Wight, the Isle of Man, then to America, from the Leeward Islands through the whole continent of Canada and Newfoundland. And the societies in all these parts walk by one rule. Knowing religion is holy tempers. This was his phrase for fruits of the Spirit. And striving to worship God, not in form only, but likewise in spirit and truth. 
Afterward, I met the society and explained to them at large the original design of Methodists, namely, not to be a distinct party, but to stir up all parties, Christian or heathens, to worship God in spirit and truth, but the Church of England in particular, to which they belonged from the beginning. I believe John Wesley really took Jesus' last words to heart when it came to unity. Jesus' final prayer before his death was this, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and me and I am in you, may they also be in us that we, the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as I, as you have loved me. Some final words, challenging words from Pete Gregg, who's the founder, of most of you probably know, of 24-7 Prayer. He, um, he tweeted this week this part that I want to read to us, and I think it's maybe a good place to land as we enter into our discussion groups. He wrote this this week, honestly, I'm a little bit tired of celebrity pastors and the constant stream of scandals and the swagger of many megachurches. I'm troubled by the loud applause we give pride, give to pride and mere efficiency, efficiency, the dearth of simple kindness, humility, and mess in the way we build community. Can we please all just put down our spreadsheets and our smartphones and simply remember Jesus? Since when was the measure of a church's success in its size instead of its love, its budget instead of its sacrifice, its seating capacity instead of its sending capacity? Maybe the questions we should be asking ourselves are ones like these. Do I feel I have to pretend on Sunday morning, or can I be real? Are we truly a praying community? If not, what does that say about our spiritual depth? Do we really believe our beliefs? How diverse is our community culturally, economically, socially, and politically? If we all look the same and vote the same, if there's no one in our midst who makes us feel uncomfortable, is it possible that we're more of a social club than an actual church? Are we truly led by a team or by a single charismatic personality? If we didn't have a building and we didn't have Zoom, would our community still exist? How much of our budget do we invest beyond ourselves in the poor and the lost? Would anyone else in our town notice us if we were gone? I'm not trying to beat anyone up here. I truly love the family of God. I'm aware there are many beautiful Christian communities out there, the vast majority, and that none of us are perfect. Just ask the members of Emmaus Road. But I love the church too much, and we actually need the church too much to leave her the way she is. The world needs a church in every community that does the works of Jesus, looks and sounds like Jesus, and models true family for those who feel lonely and lost.